Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In that draft opinion of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization leaked to the press earlier this month, Justice Samuel Alito clearly writes, quote, We hold that Roe must be overruled. And why? He goes on, quote, Some rights are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, end quote. Alidu argues that access to abortion is not one such right. Well, I'd also say that embedded in the concepts of history and tradition are values. But whose values? The First Amendment, both mentioned explicitly in the Constitution and deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, states that the government shall make no laws prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Not one specific religion, not just Christianity, but religion writ large. So how does this apply in the Dobbs case? Well, listen to this exchange between Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart during oral argument last December. They discussed the question of religion and the definition of fetal viability. I mean, Your Honor, we'll always have a diversity of views, but I think... That's the point. I think think that's one of the benefits of our society. Isn't that the point? That, that, that there's a diversity of views and people can vigorously debate and make decisions Exactly, and that's I, I what we're that's still thing, doing, and that's what we're doing under undue burden, but we haven't been doing it on the viability line. And, and neither one has worked well. The, the viability line discounts and disregards state interests, and the undue burden t- standard has all, all of the problems that How we've How is emphasized. your interest anything but a religious view? Um, the issue of when life begins has been hotly debated by philosophers since the beginning of time. It's still debated in religions. Um, So when you say this is the only right that takes away from the state the ability to protect the life, that's a religious view, isn't it? Because it assumes that a fetus is life at when? You're not drawing your. When do you suggest we begin that life? Your Honor, I, I, aside from I'm putting it aside from religion, I, I, I'll, I'll try to. I, th- I think there might be more than one question, and I'll do my very best, Justice Sotomayor. Um, I, I think this court in Gonzalez pretty clearly recognized that before viability, we are talking with unborn life with a human organism. And I think the philosophical questions Your Honor mentioned, all those reasons that they're hard, they've been debated, they're, they're, they're important, they're, those are all reasons to return this to the people because the people should get to debate these hard issues. And this court does not in that kind of a circumstance. So when does the life of a woman and putting her at risk enter the calculus? When? For both the woman and the fetus. Ask different Americans their views and you'll get different answers, based on different religions and values. Take, for example, the answer in Islam. There is a hadith from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that mentions the different stages of the embryo in with the number 40. And so it's understood, according to some, that at 40 days, the soul is uh, blown into the body, according to that hadith. And for others, it's that there's three stages of 40. So at 120 days, the uh, soul is blown into the body. And this is uh, this is important, of course, for um, understanding when and if an abortion would be something possible. Safia Ravit is co-founder of the Suba Institute, an Islamic family and relationship counseling center in Houston, Texas. I have had a few women who have reached out for counseling services 
specifically in regards to um, in regards to a, a child um, abortion. And so the the gist of, of what I would recommend to them is what our Islamic scholars have mentioned. And you'll find that there's a lot of flexibility in in this matter. And there there is choice for women. It's it's not something enforced upon them. There is choice for women and, and their husbands in you know in the case of Islamic law to make a decision of what is best for them. While Islamic law and schol- excuse me, while Islamic scholarship varies widely, Safia says there is widespread agreement about certain situations where abortion is allowed before the 40 or 120 days, she says, is described in the Hadith. And so some of those situations would be that um, before ensoulment, that if there was a situation such as sexual assault, or if the pregnancy is causing extreme harm to the mother that could potentially lead to her death or disability, whether this is physical or emotional harm. And in the case of extreme fetal deformity um, that is recognized uh, before the ensoulment time, the scholars would permit the abortion of that fetus, again, decided by, by the husband and the wife. Recall that Safia is in Houston, and Texas is one of many states that has a so-called trigger law on the books, which means if the Supreme Court does indeed overturn Roe v. Wade, Texas doctors could face prison time or a $100,000 fine for performing an abortion. The only exception would be in the case of the mother's life, if the mother's life is at risk. To Safia, that's a threat to the religious freedom of hundreds of thousands of Muslims who call Texas home. If abortion is um, murder at the point of conception, it takes away some of the freedoms that Muslims were able to navigate this uh, this difficult uh, decision, uh, given our Islamic theory. That's something that we appreciate about the Islamic law and being able to have the freedom of religion in this country to to practice that is something that as American Muslims, we really appreciate. Safia Ravid, once again, co-founder of the Suba Institute, an Islamic family and relationship counseling center in Houston, Texas. So here's a question we haven't often heard asked in the abortion debate. There is much focus on states' rights and the right to privacy, but what about the right to the free exercise of religion. Does placing restrictions on abortion based on a narrow definition of viability that may emerge from one subset of one religion violate the freedom of religion supposed to be enjoyed by all Americans? Well, let's turn now to Sarah Hurwitz. She's a rabbi in Judaism's modern Orthodox tradition, and she joins us from New York. Rabbi Hurwitz, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So, first of all, I mean, how regarding regarding the fetus, how would you say that Orthodox Judaism views the question of when does life begin? Well, there is no one answer, mm. which I think is part of what we're talking about here, that there's always a multiplicity of views. There are those who say that uh Life does begin at conception, although most views say that it doesn't begin until after 40 days, um, which is actually 40 days from conception. So it's actually a few few days after 40 days. Uh, and some say that the life only begins when the baby crowns, when the baby's head crowns, which leaves a lot of space in the middle for debate and for people's personal circumstances to take precedent over what the academic law might say. Okay. So then if if someone were to come to you for counsel, what uh, scriptural sources would you turn to, um, to 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 advise this person? Well, there's two main frameworks that we would look at. Um, and one is a little bit more restrictive and one is 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 more open. And I would say that in the past 30 years of people coming to uh, rabbis to answer some of these questions, um, there tends to be a, a emphasis on openness, on uh, progression, on being much more 
uh, open to the woman's particular situation. And it seems to me, based on just looking at people's particular circumstances, that most people uh, get an allowance to have an abortion if it is if they even ask the question of a rabbi. So you ask what somebody what would happen if somebody asked me? I would listen. I would uh, look into the woman's eyes, look into uh, understand her family circumstance, try to uh, really get to the bottom of what's driving the question. It's never simple. It's never easy. It's always comes a lot of pain, um, perhaps some trauma. And I think standing with her side by side and with the family, because it's often a family decision, not only a decision that the woman is making, I would guide her through the process and help her make the decision that's right for her. And I think most often in many circumstances, it would uh, we would allow her for the result to be an abortion if that was necessary. Okay, so then in the case where abortions are already extremely restricted or potentially after this summer um, basically banned, do you think that would be an infringement on the religious right of a Jewish woman um, seeking an abortion? Absolutely. There are times where religious law might mandate that a woman have a abortion. And then we'll be in a situation where the uh, the rabbis are are uh, going up against a legal system. Um, I think it's going to impact a lot of women and families in Jewish communities in Texas and Florida, where we'll we'll have situations where, uh, for whatever reason, the rabbis say, have an abortion, and they legally won't be able to find one. Uh, we have about 30 seconds before our first break, but Rabbi, could you just, is there an example of when, when religious law uh, might, uh, a Jewish religious law might mandate a woman have an abortion? Sure. There certainly, as we said, the most obvious is if a mother's uh, life is in danger, that goes without saying. Uh, but then there are other other times where the, the baby might have a defect. Um, perhaps the uh, mother's uh, mental health is at stake. Um, perhaps the family, the mother is in an abusive relationship. They can't afford it. Uh, there might be uh, many reasons that would um, lead rabbis to allow her to have an abortion. Well, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, stand by here for just a moment. Today we're talking about the question of whether Americans can freely exercise their religion regarding abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're exploring the question of whether Americans could freely exercise their chosen religions regarding seeking access to abortion if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. I'm joined today by Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz. She's dean of Yeshivat Maharat, the first institution to ordain Orthodox women, Orthodox Jewish women, as clergy. And she's with us from New York. And Rabbi, I wonder if you could help, uh, you know, help educate me on, on certain aspects of um, uh, of Jewish law. There is, is Jewish law called the Halakha. Am I saying that correctly? You got to get that guttural cha in, <laughs> but it's basically correct. Halakha. Okay, so explain to us, sort of, for those of us who don't know, like what what constitutes that. Um, halakha is the uh, evolution of law that is based on the Bible, based on the Torah, um, but is also interpreted through an oral tradition, um, through uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years of rabbis. Uh, interpreting law. And I think that the whole basis of halakha is that uh, very often there are uh, multiple approaches to how we we see or do things. And certainly when it comes to issues of identity, of life and death, um, there is, isn't always one approach. Mm. So what I'm curious to know is there, it seems to me there's this implicit assumption um, when, you know, you, you we heard it in that uh, s- that section of the oral argument that we played, and we've often heard in um, abortion debates for decades now in the United States, that for those people who um, view viability or, or um, the state's obligation to protect the fetus as beginning at conception— that um, they pri- there's the implicit prioritization of, of fetal life over uh, the woman's life or the, the, the choice that a woman might make uh, for her life. Uh, does the halakha contain that same prioritization? There are those that say that if you believe that uh, the fetus has life, at least after 40 days, that murdering or or aborting the fetus um, is akin to murder. Um, But there are those who say that the fetus is really just a limb, a part of the mother, and doesn't have its own uh, it, it's it, it is not its own entity. It's attached, and if it's attached, and the mother's life is in danger, then there's no question that, that you can remove a limb, so to speak. You're not ideally supposed to do that, but you can uh, you can get rid of the limb that's impacting the life of the mother, and so you could indeed save the life of a mother um, over the, the the unborn child. Mm. Now, some of the the uh, laws already on the books in the United States, and and those that may be uh, uh, may be triggered if Rose overturned, um, would make exceptions and and still uh, allow uh, abortions in the cases where the the woman's uh, life is in danger. Um, uh, I'm not sure. People can correct me if I'm wrong. I can't quite remember if there's any proposal right there to ban even those. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the, the reason why I I make that uh, observation is that you said a little bit earlier, of course, that there are lots of other ways to define a, a woman's well-being beyond her being dead, right? right. Uh, and so and so then I'm just wondering how that sort of vast um, area of a woman's sort of sovereignty over her own body, her well-being, how does that sort of um, line up against what you talked about Jewish law sees as this um, variable views on um, on fetal life. There's a concept in Judaism called Bahem, that you should live by them. And what that actually means is that we have to live in the world. And uh, when you apply that to uh, this, uh, this very ethical and difficult decision, I think that 
the life of the, the the quality of the life of a woman, of a mother, of a family has to be taken into account. Um, and I think that drives the, the the rabbis, some of us looking at their religious lore to find a loophole, to find a way um, to help a family be able to survive and live. And so if there's gonna if the birth of a child is going to create a tremendous amount of trauma. Perhaps it was, you know, came about by rape or incest. Um, if the life of of the woman is going to be impacted, um, then I think that that would be a reason to allow a family to explore aborting. Mm. Well, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, stand by here for just a second, because as I mentioned earlier in, in the hour, this question of religious freedom um, and uh, protecting access to abortion rights uh, isn't something we've heard very often. And and the reason, one of the reasons why is that um, uh, uh, for advocates seeking to reduce access to abortion, they have strenuously kept the question of religion out uh, of the picture. So we turn to Rachel Lasser, president and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. We haven't seen traditionally the Establishment Clause or religious freedom argument take the day in the courts when it comes to abortion bans. And the reason is because long time ago, the court found that the right to an abortion existed in the Constitution in in what they called the the penumbra of of privacy. And so it was located in a different place already. That doesn't mean that it doesn't also get protected by other things, you know, and we would argue that reproductive freedom is religious freedom and vice versa. And so to be clear there, Lasser saying that arguing for freedom of religion as a reason to protect abortion access isn't something uh, that pre- people previously had to do because, again, that question of abortion access was put into the category of the right to privacy. But Lasser says the current legal standard remains flexible enough to accommodate those questions of religious freedom. Right now, the line is viability in utero. It's been the well-established standard for half a century. Um, and it avoids offending the religions and, and moral systems that judge having an abortion before viability as permissible or even required um, in some denominations. Laster says that she believes if abortion ends up being banned in the United States, it would effectively give legal rights to fetuses that are not viable outside the womb. And that is a religious side in a debate, not a legal one. And Lasser says she believes it would be a violation of a core constitutional principle. The Constitution doesn't allow the state to establish any one set, one set of religious beliefs or religious beliefs over non-religious beliefs. It says that we have to separate religion from government. And therefore, in order to allow a woman to be able to make a decision according to her religious or moral belief system, you have to leave the decision to the woman. In fact, Lasser says that uh, activists opposed to abortion and lawmakers opposed to abortion already understand the vulnerability of legal challenges uh, based on religion or challenges focused on the separation between church and state. Religious extremists used to be much more explicit about their desire to impose their beliefs on American laws. But they've gotten smart about not making that explicit and out in the open. And therefore, it is extremely rare to see uh, an abortion ban or restriction these days explicitly reference the religious basis for that ban. They've scrubbed their legislation of explicit religious language, which makes it more complicated to bring uh, a First Amendment religious freedom claim. Nevertheless, Lasser is worried that the Dobbs case could be the thin edge of a wedge for a broader fight that erodes the distinction between government and religion. This Dobbs abortion case is truly 
in and of itself a travesty for women and women's lives, uh, but also the canary in the coal mine about what's coming next if we allow religious extremists to do a takeover of our American democracy. And it's no joke. It's it's scary. It's 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 no joke, but practically inconceivable when you've grown up in an America um, where you didn't see that coming and where you just didn't have a clue that that could be a reality because you've never seen it before. That's Rachel Lasser, president and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. I want to bring Elizabeth Reiner-Platt into the conversation now. She's director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University Law School. Elizabeth, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, um, given what Rachel Lasser just said there in our previous conversation with her uh, and the strenuous attention that anti-abortion activists and lawmakers have paid to not putting religious language in legislation or law, I mean, in a sense, is the entire conversation we're having could it potentially be moot already? Well, I think there are two ways to look at the issue. One is this church-state separation issue in which uh, Rachel rightly pointed out that there's a, a tough road ahead in, in making those claims um, because of the lack of explicitly religious language, um, among other reasons. Uh, although I will say that there is a law being debated today in Louisiana that does explicitly reference God. So, you know, I, I wonder as, as we see uh, more overreach and o- perhaps overconfidence in the anti-abortion movement, you know, those claims could be reinvigorated. Um, but the other f- side of the coin is the is the religious liberty right of individuals. Mm. And, and in that sense, uh, saying that a particular law that is written in an extremely neutral term and doesn't reference religion at, at all, um, nevertheless violates uh, my own religious practices could be a, a second avenue. Mm. Well, I want to play another moment from oral argument in Dobbs, uh, because, again, this question of religious liberty, in fact, did come up in certain ways. Here is Justice uh, Samuel Alito um, prompting or, 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 or questioning Mississippi Solicitor General uh, Scott Stewart. Are there secular philosophers and bioethicists who take the position that uh, the rights of personhood begin um, at conception or at some point other than viability? Um, I, I believe so. I mean, I think there's a wide array, I mean, of, of, of people of kind of all different views and, and of no faith views who, who would reasonably have that view, Your Honor. It's, it's, it's not tied to a religious view, and I don't think were it otherwise, this court's jurisprudence would, on this issue, would run right into some of its uh, religious exercise jurisprudence. So, Elizabeth Platt, uh, there's Scott Stewart saying explicitly it isn't tied to a religious view. Well, unfortunately, there is some case law that suggests, uh, most notably a a case called Harris-McRae in 1980, um, that did uphold uh, the Hyde Amendment, which um, prohibited uh, federal funding for abortion. And and what the court said in response to uh, a church-state separation um, argument was that, you know, merely because a statute happens to coincide with tenets of some religions, uh, that doesn't make it inherently religious. Um, and, and that's why I think the some of the more interesting questions have to do with uh, individuals, the many individuals, who say, you know, regardless of whether you want to kind of uh, believe in this this fig leaf that these are non-religious laws, um, even, even if we do see them as neutral, uh, they nevertheless are infringing on my religious liberty right to help others access abortion, to make reproductive decisions based on my own faith beliefs, my own moral values, um, or even to provide abortion. There's a a long and and really rich history of abortion providers uh, articulating their work in religious terms as a ministry or a mitzvah or uh, doing the Lord's work. So, you know, I don't think that this whole conversation hinges merely on being able to prove that these laws are inherently religious. Okay, so so that seems to be a critical distinction there. Perhaps the focus shouldn't be so much on what the state or, in this case, the Supreme Court um, 
is saying, whether implicitly or explicitly, regarding one religious definition of life, but the impact that it's going to have on um, Americans of many different religions. Uh, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz, did you want to respond to that? I agree. I think that the, you know, I'm a I'm an immigrant. I came from South Africa, and we left apartheid South Africa to come to America because of its uh, religious freedom and ability to to practice and 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 uh, you know be how how we dreamed. And I think that the idea that I would impose my religious beliefs on somebody else or vice versa doesn't sit well with me. I think that there's such a diversity of, of belief systems within religion and without religion that, that um, imposing that view is doesn't seem to make sense. It, it's, to me, it's not the definition of the American right of freedom. Hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit more uh, about your South African experience and and how that plays into um, you know how you view your life in, um, as an American now? Yeah, I mean, we left when I was twelve, and it was nineteen eighty nine, right before Mandela was released. We didn't know that that was imminent at the time, but my parents took us out of a a country where they felt like the future um, for my family was limited, and that they they. They didn't believe the country's uh, lack of equity and, and intolerance for all people and wanted to take us to a world and a place where there was multiple opportunities and a diversity uh, way of being and acceptance of all people. Mm. Now, we've got a minute left with you, Rabba, and I wanted to ask you what you thought about what Rachel Lasser um, uh, said a little bit earlier in that, in that tape we played, because she was concerned that the Dobbs case... She called it the canary in the coal mine um, about religion in American democracy. And, and as, a, as a Jewish leader yourself, I'm wondering what you think about that. I think it underscores what I was saying before, that um, I my ability to practice, you know, I, I'm an Orthodox rabbi, and that is controversial in the Orthodox movement. But because uh, there is law on my side, and because I live in a, a place where uh, the country doesn't really care uh, exactly how I practice, then I can be and do what I want. But if, if those rights were taken away, and I think that the writing is on the wall with with uh, with the way the uh, legal system is thinking about abortion. I I am worried. Well, Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz with us from New York. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Elizabeth Platt, director of the Law, Rights and Religion Project at Columbia University Law School. Hang on. We'll have a lot more to talk about in just a minute. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're exploring the question of if Roe v. Wade gets overturned by the United States Supreme Court, could that actually have an impact on an individual American's right to freely exercise her religion? And we're getting a lot of comments here. Uh, Collier Channel uh, on our Twitter or our Facebook page says, separate heartbeat, separate body, it's science. That's the premise of all the heartbeat laws. Religion 
has nothing to do with it. Whereas uh, Carolyn Ann Gritter says last year, an Arkansas state senator sponsored a bill to ban nearly all abortions, explaining that, quote, there are six things God hates. And one of those is people who shed innocent blood. There are so many other examples of those bent on the- uh, theocratizing America who let God into the legislative chamber Anyway, I'm joined today by Elizabeth Reiner Platt. She's director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University Law School. And uh, Elizabeth, I wonder if we could just take a step back here for for a moment. Um, still focused on 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 basically individuals, health, and and religion, but outside the realm of abortion. Because I was trying to think to myself, you know, uh, what does case law say, or or precedent, or however we might look at it, about you know, a parent's right to freely use uh, his or her own uh, religion and religious values to determine the health care that they want for their child, or or a doctor's right to use their own religious values on who they would treat and who they wouldn't. Because if we're talking about how overturning Roe v. Wade might have an impact on an individual's religious freedom. Certainly there are other places in the world of health that we could look for examples. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Especially over the past few years, we've really seen an explosion in the individual right of uh, religious practitioners to act on their faith, even when there are extremely important health and child welfare interests on the other side. So if you look at the combination of Supreme Court case law and state uh, religious exercise laws, you know, we've seen um, in the in the wake of the COVID pandemic, uh, enormously broad rights of religious people to to gather, um, even with the the uh, in the face of of a global pandemic that certainly implicates issues of life and health. There are state laws that create religious exemptions from immunization laws um, and even give some parents the right to practice faith healing. Uh, so essentially creating exemptions um, from medical neglect laws for children. So, you know, I think we we do have this system where the uh, right to act on one's uh, religious faith is, is extraordinarily broad. Um, and, you know, I, I think it would be hard for courts to, to get out from under this precedent that they've set. Uh, in the in the um, context of someone making uh, an incredibly important uh, decision about their their life and welfare, I mean, I'm thinking of cases where parents, for example, who who do their religious beliefs um, mandate them to deny any, for example, modern medical care uh, for their child, and I, I, there have been cases that end up in court where. You know, perhaps a child's life is in danger, and what it, it's the hospital system that that uh, that sues the parents so that the hospital can gain the right to give the child treatment. Am, am, am I misremembering that kind of case? Yeah, there are those cases, and and they you know play out in various ways. And and as you mentioned, there's also um, very broad uh, right for uh, healthcare providers to deny services based on their own personal religious beliefs. So we actually just issued a whole report called the Southern Hospitals Report that uh, provides a a host of examples of hospital systems that withhold um, uh, care to to pregnant women because of extreme anti-abortion regulations. And it impacts not just, you know, kind of what we think of as abortion care, but care for patients with cancer, with kidney disease, uh, with mental health concerns, uh, and and many examples of um, uh, patients facing a miscarriage who are unable to get the care they need because of the religiously motivated policies. And I'll say that we even found examples of hospitals where decisions about abortion are made by panels that include faith leaders as members. And these are hospitals that aren't serving a particular faith population, but the general public. Hmm. Now, what's so interesting about this is that, um, I mean, you've observed in in your scholarship a report that, uh, that I believe you co-authored last year that says the Supreme Court is, has already shown um, that it takes a view of the Constitution that, that uh, in your words, that ranks fundamental rights, that religious liberty is now given top-tier protection. Tell me more about that. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And so, and this was, uh, we examined hundreds of cases that played out over the, the course of the pandemic. And we found that there was this sense of absolute crisis and emergency that the court treated cases involving um, fairly minimum, you know, restrictions on uh, gathering for worship. Uh, particularly, there's a case called Tandon Venusum where all in-home gatherings, whether religious or secular, um, were subject to uh, a cap of how many families could gather in order to try to curb the spread of the virus. And the court treated this as an absolute crisis that uh, people were not allowed to gather in home for Bible worship. And at the same time, um, they seemed you know, utterly unconcerned with the rights of people stuck in crowded prisons during the pandemic, uh, with states that used the pandemic as an opportunity to um, completely limit the right to abortion, uh, with the you know, cases brought regarding making sure people had access to vote. So I think that um, what we saw over the past couple of years really put in stark contrast, as you said, this ranking of fundamental rights, um, you know, with a, with uh, with religion at the top. And now it seems as if with abortion cut out as not a fundamental right at all. But to be clear, though, the COVID example is an interesting one, because here we have states who have who said uh, you know, during you know the the, the most intense uh, parts of the pandemic that in order to protect life, right, in order to stop the spread of a deadly disease, to protect mm-hmm. life, the state put restrictions on on individuals. That that is what happened. But the Supreme Court responded by saying an individual's right to practice their religious belief was was more important than the state's right to protect life. That's right. So then how is that different when it comes to abortion? Uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be asking this question to the justices. I get it. <laughs> but you're, you're my proxy here, Elizabeth. Right, sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I, think, I think there are a couple ways. You know, I, I, I recognize um, that while one of the most important, you know, uh, rules of religious liberty is religious neutrality and creating the same rules for everyone and not uh, picking and choosing to protect just those religious communities that you like. That said, you know, I think we've seen that the Supreme Court has um, has applied different tests and different standards to different communities. So, for example, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, we um, saw that they uh, um, we saw that they did an extremely searching review of the record um, in order to uh, find that Jack Phillips, a baker who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, um, uh, was the, actually the victim of illicit religious discrimination. A couple weeks later, they just they declined to even consider um, evidence of religious animus in the Muslim ban case. Um, so, you know, I... I, I you know, I, I approach the Supreme Court with caution. That said, I think a couple things to keep in mind is that these cases might not be Supreme Court cases. Most cases uh, are are heard in, in states, and uh, we might well see um, more of a state-based approach here. And the other thing I'll say is that the Supreme Court is not forever. Um, so I think arguments in favor of religious liberty right to support abortion um, are actually quite long. There, There is a long history of these claims. They've never been fully litigated, so that's why we don't have a lot of case law on them. Um, but the cases that are made today might not become law tomorrow, but they might plant a seed to, to really get people thinking about religious liberty rights in a new way, way down the line. Okay, point taken. But you know, I'm seeing here, though, that, that you're trying to also make a, a deeper point about um, this sort of prioritization or tiering of, <laughs> of, of, of rights enumerated in the Constitution, even though the Constitution doesn't necessarily say one is actually more important than the other. But, but I mean— I, I'm hearing you argue that, um, I mean, you've written about this, that that essentially you see an unprecedented hierarchy of constitutional rights with the free exercise of religion at the top, but not all religion. I mean, let's just drive right at it. It's the free exercise of uh, conservative Christianity that you see is at the top of this hierarchy that the Supreme Court is creating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you can see, I mean... just looking at the range of, of ways that they've protected uh, 
really across a range of doctrines, um, conservative Christian claimants, whether that be, you know, the the, the cake bakers, um, the crisis pregnancy centers. And now I think this session, the court is very likely to rule in favor of a public high school uh, football coach um, who is claiming a free exercise right, not just to pray after games, but specifically to pray in the middle of the football field, surrounded by students at a public school. Um, so absolutely, I think that's that's really the through line. Okay, but then again, but as but but as you said, as we've explored, for the vast majority of the of the rulings and and the laws that we're talking about here, the explicit religious language doesn't appear in the language of the rulings or the laws. That might change, but so far those the, that's the exception. Um, so therefore, you know, if if there are Americans out there who who believe that restricting abortion um, access in, is an impingement on their um, free exercise of religion, then you know, what recourse do they have? Well, they wouldn't have to show that the law is religiously motivated. They could just say that the law is infringing on the religious practice. And I think we this could show up in a lot of ways. I think it could be an individual who says that they have religious objections to uh, bringing a uh, uh, child into the world that they are not uh, emotionally or, or physically or financially prepared to care for. Um, I think we could see uh, uh, claims by um, faith leaders and faith-motivated people um, bringing a, a religious exercise right to provide resources and information to people seeking abortion care. Um, or, or again, claims um, by providers saying, uh, it's actually against my religion um, to turn people away in their, their moment of need when I have the, the training and the resources to provide this care. Mm. So I, I do wonder what you think um, sort of the state of uh, religious liberty for all Americans is in the country right now. Yeah, I think it's at threat. I do. I think uh, we are absolutely seeing a rise of, of Christian nationalism, and um, there are people who have you know documented these ideas very well. Um, but I also, you know, what gives me hope is that I think we're also seeing a really incredible response. Um, there, you know, this idea of a religious right to abortion is not something that lawyers made up in the past couple of weeks. Uh, a whole host of religious denominations from uh, Reform and Jewish conservative rabbin uh, uh, rabbinical associations, United Church of Christ, uh, United, uh, the Unitarians, Evangelical Lutherans, Presbyterians, they've all issued statements, some, you know, decades past, um, articulating uh, the right to abortion as a religious liberty right. And I think, you know, as we're kind of seeing the writing on the wall, um, I, I, we are going to see, I think, an outpouring of, of faith-motivated activism on this issue. Mm. So how does that, you know, if, if, if when you're saying that there is indeed a long history of very, very different views uh, on abortion and even religious arguments for the protection of uh, abortion rights, um, how does that then play against what Justice Alito is writing in that draft, uh, that draft decision that he argues that abortion doesn't have, a, you know, a long, it's not deeply rooted and um, a long part of this nation's history or traditions. Well, you know, who was the Constitution written for? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think if, if that's the standard uh, for, for finding co constitutional rights is, you know, looking into the hearts uh, of the founding fathers, I think we're really on a, a quite a disturbing course. Um, but the reality is that, you know, as I said, there is there is a long history and, um, you know, an, a legacy that that I really, I think, um, empowers me and, and lifts me up is, is looking to groups like the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which was a, a national network of faith leaders in the years prior to Roe v. Wade um, that helped, you know, saw the, the crisis in the pews, saw what was happening to their um the 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 people that they were interacting with every day and stepped up and um, helped vet uh, illegal abortion to mm. providers made sure um, saw who was you know providing adequate care uh, and and helped facilitate access yeah. um, uh, to safe legal and illegal uh, abortion um, at great personal risk um, 
Mm. You know, it's so interesting, this question of religion in America, it, it cuts in multiple different ways. Um, because, you know, there are many examples that we can think of of when um, individuals or organizations have said, said, because of my religious belief, the government cannot compel me to do X, right? Even at the level of corporations, the Hobby Lobby case, right, was that um, where they did not want to provide contraception or cover contraception with uh, employer-provided insurance uh, because of religious beliefs. Uh, but it can. we've also seen cases where it cuts the, the other way. You pointed out, um, we've just got 30 seconds here, of um, religious activists who were leaving food and water for, for um, migrants crossing the southern border of the United States saying that their religion, religious belief compelled them to act in such a way and the government couldn't tell them to stop. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually um, one of the the strongest areas of case law is folks uh, using, you know, um, motivated by really deeply held religious beliefs to help others, to serve others, whether that's by dropping uh, food and water in the desert, whether that's by um, opening a homeless shelter or or even a tent city on church property. Um, And those are, are, you know, probably some of the strongest religious liberty claims that I see. Mm. Well, Elizabeth Reiner Platt, director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University Law School, with us from New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.